I am so excited to be with you all tonight. Thank you, Rabbi Schneider. We're grateful for you and the community and for Temple Kolemi's partnership with what we do. And look forward to doing a lot of great things together. And I'm grateful that you all dedicated a Tuesday night. I'm sure there's something going on uh, of importance in the world that you could be doing instead. What's that? Baseball games. Okay, I should have... Yeah, I should have I known. At our sauna event coming up, it's the opening Suns game, so we're going to find out who cares more about Judaism versus basketball. Uh, no judgment. No judgment. But, uh, so I'm so glad you all are here, and um, it's, my, uh, it's, it's my pleasure to, to, to introduce our speaker tonight. You know, some of our topics are around personal growth and inspiration. Some are around the Jewish role in the, in the broader world of what we can contribute. And some are our internal dynamics. Um, yeah, internal dynamics. It, it, it's a terrible joke and I wasn't planning to say it, but some people say um, they um, uh, are opposed to organized religion. They're not interested in organized religion. So I say, please join Judaism. We're really, really disorganized. <laughs> so, um, so actually we'll see that we actually have some of our own dynamics and complications among our people. And the best person in the world to address this issue from a national Zionistic from, from, from the homeland itself is Rabbi Dr. Seth Farber, who to me is um, uh, a teacher, teacher and hero to me. He was raised in Riverdale, New York. He taught in, in Boston after completing his degree at NYU and uh, getting his ordination at, at YU and completing a doctorate at Hebrew University. He made Aliyah and he is a pulpit rabbi in Renana. Folks been to Renana before? Beautiful community. Um, and is the director and founder of ET, which you will learn more about. I also just gave you a handout to, to learn more about it. Um, and Rabbi Farber is a person who is the world's expert on this issue, but not just that, he's in the trenches, fighting for people whose Jewish statuses have been denied or have been challenged within the Israeli system. Now, I know our hearts right now are in a different place with Israel right now, with all going on. Um, and so maybe in some ways it's refreshing to turn off the noise of the violence and the conflict to focus on a different conflict um, within, within the Jewish people. So um, with that, we will go no later than 8.30 tonight. There'll be a chance to study some source sheets and to ask questions and have conversation. And it is a distinct pleasure and honor for me uh, to call up a really a hero of Kla Yisrael, of the Jewish people, a wonderful educator and author and thinker and leader for our people, Rabbi Farber. Good evening. I had the distinct pleasure of uh, having a professor in graduate school who was, uh, uh, I say he was an avid Met fan, he was a rabid Met fan. <laughs> and he, in the middle of graduate school, he was invited to get a paper in, in September 1986, which was the year the Mets won the World Series. And I remember the fellow from graduate school the next day, he said, uh, I got with my lecture, and I hesitated to walk into the lecture, but eventually I walked in. There were only people in the room, and the first thing I said when I got to the lecture was, I know why I'm here. I was about to give a paper, but why are you all here? <laughs> <laughs> We're not in New York, and I hope you're not all Mets fans. And I just uh, got off texting my son, who's in Israel, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's watching the game because he knows his Abba is not there to tell him he has to go to school tomorrow morning. So, uh, <laughs> 2,500 years ago, a young man in his 30s who lived about 
half a mile from where my office is in Jerusalem. Looked out of the community and said, hey, we're in a transitional moment in the history of the Jewish people. Something exciting is happening. Something remarkable is, remarkable is about to change here. And he stood on a soapbox, proverbial with me, and he said, I want to give you the risk for the future of the Jewish people. Nothing less than that. That young man's name was Isaiah Yishayahu. And I want to read with you, we were actually studying with you for a moment, even interactively. On the third page, forgive me, take you off of my computer, I'm just getting the transition, got a little messed up. But I want to read to you his recipe for this great new moment in the history of the Jews. I'm reading from Isaiah 56, which by the way, traditional liturgy has now been incorporated into the rituals for public fasting. Not Yom Kippur, but other fasting. Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is near to come and my favor to be revealed. That's the recipe we draw all about for, right? Justice, righteousness. That's something we can understand. Happy is the man, verse 2, happy is the man, the person who does this, the son of man that holds fast by it, that keeps the Sabbath from profaning it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. What's the difference between those two things, by the way? He talks about keeping, observing the Sabbath, or keeping the Sabbath, the Shabbat, and making sure you don't do anything bad. What's the difference between those two things? Conception. One is a positive, and... I don't know. I don't know if keeping the Sabbath is also positive. Keeping the Sabbath is positive. One is the commandment between you and God, and the other one is between you and them. Excellent. What's your name? I'm sorry? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. I don't know. One is, but the, 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 the range is different, right? One is horizontal, one is vertical. Whereas if you are careful, I think I'm pretty sure that there's the problem that, conceptually speaking, if you're careful to always focus on your relationship with God, and at the same time, never let that blind you from your relationship between yourself and your community, between yourself and the other, then you will be part of this great note. That's the prophecy. And if the prophecy ended here, we would be in good shape. Right. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. But then this young man introduces, or introduced his leadership, or introduces us Two figures, two individuals, who are going to be the focus of my discussion this evening. Not because of who they are, and much more because of who they represent. One of these verses, by the way, you all know. You actually know it by heart. And in Hebrew, even if you don't speak Hebrew, you know. Verse 3. I'll read it in Hebrew first. Al-Yomar ben Hanechar Hanilva el Adonai lemor Havdel Yavilani Adonai mi'alamor It's a tough word to phrase to translate, but let not the, the alien, that's not a good word, the foreigner, the ben Hanechar, the son of the, of the, of the heathen, who 
has joined himself to the Lord. That's the first person. Who's the son of the non-Jew who joined himself or herself to the Lord? Is that one word? The convert. So let not the convert say, or let the convert not say, quote, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's one person. And the second half of verse 3, neither let the eunuch say, in Hebrew the word is saris. The word saris is a man who cannot bring children into the world. Okay? A man is sterile. Let him not say, behold, I am a dry tree. That is a strange doctrine. A convert and a guy who can't bring children into the world. And the prophet says, at this grand moment in Jewish history, I want to focus in on these two people. And then he speaks each one of them. This is a remarkable passage. And any, any prophecy is strange, but this one is particularly strange. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the Saris, to the guy who can't bring children into the world, that keeps my Sabbaths and chooses things that please me and holds fast to my covenant. The next phrase, verse 5, is a phrase you all know by heart.
you understand you also have a part in it. But that, of course, just opens up a second question, probably a more basic question, which is, so why single out two people? Just say, if you feel like you're living on the periphery, don't worry, you don't have to live on the periphery. What's the difference between the Saris, the guy who brings the children into the world, and the convert? What's the difference between them? Not as people, of course, but as concepts. I just want to give it a second second to think. Right? The prophet, he has this great recipe, justice, righteousness. But then he looks at him, he looks at these two people, and he says, hey, you feel like you're in the periphery, don't worry, we'll be with the center. What's the difference between them? Yeah. One is differentiated by choice, and one has no choice. Okay. It's possible the one has no choice. Which one has no choice? Right, the unit, the guy who can't have children, it's very possible, we don't know for 100%. Right? Because it could be he chose that way, it could be. Not clear. But, right, correct. Could be that, right, in, in, in early biblical Hebrew, it could also be the guy does it for himself. But it could be one has choice, one doesn't have choice. Do you think of other differences as well? Particularly in this context, between the convert and the, the someone who can't bring children into the world. Why does the prophet specifically say like that? judge on a rabbinical court for a conversion. And the woman emerged in the mikvah, she came out. The first of the three of us, the first judge said, hey, how does it feel? She said, it's great. The second one, I said, mazel tov. Third one says, no, no, I want to go back to the first. How does it feel? 
said, I told the first judge, it feels great. I, I worked on it so hard because I've been studying. No, 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 how does it feel, he said. She said, I told you, it feels great. He said, no, no, no. How does it feel to know that for 2,000 years they've been trying to kill your parents and your grandparents and your grandparents? You were the victim of anti-Semitism. You can't create a past for something. You can't, right? But what we can do is say, don't worry. It's okay if maybe biologically you don't have that past. But as far as our community is concerned, as far as this grand moment in Jewish history, you have a shared past. And now I'm moving from 2,500 years ago my eyes. As Rishwuli mentioned, the theme, the organization I work for, one of the things we do in Israel is we have a hotline for people who get stuck in Jewish life and mission. And I'm going to read you a very, very painful email I recently received. Very painful. And I read it not to get you angry or frustrated or upset, but I read it to show you where we're up to today, or at least part of where we're up to today. Dear team, I translated this from Hebrew. Today I went to the rabbi. I'm getting married. In Israel, as you know, there's no separation of synagogue and state. If you want to get married, you can only get married through the rabbi, right? There's the number of intermarriages in Israel is zero, because you can't get intermarried legally in Israel. If you're Jewish, you have to go to the rabbi, the rabbi is controlled by. Uh, again, I don't want to make judgment calls right now, but the ultra orthodox we don't really understand their particular situation. I'm going to talk about this a little more in a few minutes. So she walked to the rabbit. This is a special day for me. I'm an official bride. I want to get married, to live with my beloved, to build a family. You don't have a rabbi, but the rabbi on me. You go to a clerk. But the clerk just looked at me and said, You were born in Russia. You aren't Jewish until you can prove it. Me not Jewish? This must be some terrible mistake. My whole life I was Jewish. I went to Jewish school in Uzbekistan. I came in Aliyah because I'm Jewish. I served in the IDF because I'm Jewish. And today I'm not Jewish until I can prove it to him. And the next six sentences are pure populism and they're painful. And they make me cry every time I read. She writes, I don't want to cry out my whole family were slaughtered in the Russian ports and in the Mecca. It was a big mistake. It's true you were killed because you were Jewish, but you weren't really Jewish. Today, here I, one of the few remaining people from our large family, was declared not Jewish in the meantime. My estate was granted in the wake of the Shoah because you were murdered. If only when standing there in front of the firing squad in the gas chambers, you would call out and explain to the murderers that you weren't really Jewish. Because the Israeli rabbis in Jerusalem, they don't recognize you as Jews. And maybe you would still be alive. My grandmother and grandfather wouldn't just be silent. But you didn't know, you went to your death as proud Jews. Hitler was feeling less vigilant than the rabbis. If I can prove my Jewishness, I can tell you the rest in peace. It wasn't a mistake. You were killed because you were Jews, 100% kosher. The degradation I encountered today will never be erased from my heart. And I promise you I will not be silent. Can you help me? That's a very painful letter. What it shows you is that we haven't managed to fulfill yet Isaiah's prophecy. And that is really 
the introduction to tonight's topic. For today, what I want to talk to you about is not express our Jewish enough. What is the Jewish people doing about people who are Jewish enough? What are we doing about it? Allow me to tell you the story about Mark Rashford. Someone knows him in Mark's a wonderful guy. He actually called me the day before his wedding. That's the first time I met him. Mark grew up in Chicago, suburban Chicago. He, uh, he's the North American Jewish Samaritan. His story is probably not unlike many of yours. Maybe he's older than a few of you. Mark grew up in the, in the 60s, president of BBYO, member of uh, uh, Bar Mitzvah, was in the conservative synagogue. In 1973, at the age of 17, he went to Israel. Moved to, didn't move. He was living on a kibbutz for a while. The war broke out in the fall of 73. He volunteered in the kibbutz. You kind of know what this story is already, of course. During the war, falls in love with one of the girls in the kibbutz. But all in all, he's 17 years old, right? And then by the age of 18, he stayed in Israel a few more months volunteering. But they're sure they're likely going to be together. Mark says, look, before we move this forward, I'm going to go back and I think we were in Chicago. Okay, he goes back to Chicago, he goes to college, he gets married, she gets married in Israel. Okay, cut to the you know, late 2000s, you know, the 2007, 8, 9, whatever year it was. And of course, Mark comes back to Israel, he decides to find, you know, he's now divorced, right? He doesn't know he's doing narrative, right? He's now divorced, and he goes to find her to son around, and she's also divorced. And they get back together, and it's wonderful, they decide to get married, it's all great. It's all great, and they're planning to get married, and everything is great, until exactly 24 hours before the wedding. When Mark goes to finalize his paperwork with the rabbi, and then finds out that the clerk says, hey, well, I forgot to ask, hey, Mark, can you bring me a letter that says you're Jewish? Mark's like, of course I'm Jewish, right? This is someone who comes from, you know, a couple hundred miles from here. Of course I'm, my, what is my identity if not Jewish? And then we have three words for what happens then crash and burn. Okay? Because Mark can't provide the kind of documentation that the system in Israel expects him to have. And then we're in trouble. And Mark is calling me with less than 24 hours at this point to his wedding. And by the time he tells this whole story, we're less than 24 hours. And then we're kind of like, so what do you do? And what are the Jewish people doing about Mark? I mean, I can tell you what I'm doing about it. I don't know if I have to tell you the end of Mark's story, right? I'll even talk to you now. I'm going to leave you hanging here. I'll leave you hanging for another story. Okay, in the end, Mark, that night, right, we tried to get the uh, burial records of Mark's grandmother, who was also coming to America. I, by the way, might be the only. Orthodox rabbi in the world who has a membership to the Archival Society of Ellis Island, and we pulled Mark's grandmother's immigration records, and we found her burial records in, in the Waldheim Cemetery, Cemetery, and we got them to take a picture of Mark's grandmother's tombstone, and we brought it to the rabbis in the morning, and they proved it. And an hour and a half before the wedding, Mark was able to get the certification. 
But that's not a good way to, that's not a good way to proceed. That's not what we're going to do today. What's happening within the Jewish world is, this is no secret, it's something you know intuitively, but I see it every day. Jewish, I'm not going to 
the Jewish? Why do we insist that they turn themselves over and go through all sorts of machinations to prove they're Jewish? And why have I been quoted saying over and over and over again that at least 80% of the students going on birthright would have a very difficult time getting married? Why did the writing actually say? And the answer is this issue has become perhaps the touchstone issue of how the Orthodox community, which I'm part of, is not dealing with modernity. There's an assumption, and in my opinion, it's a bad assumption. It's an assumption within certain streams of the ultra-Orthodox community and the Orthodox community as well, more and more, that affects you directly. That says that Judaism is no longer determined by lineage, but it's determined by observance. It's best expressed in the last source that was written in Brooklyn by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who is the standard also, unfortunately, in many corridors in Israel. I'm reading on page 7, not in the Hebrew on page 6. Those individuals who come from distances and declare themselves Jewish may be suspect if we have reason to believe they were not born Jewish or if there is evidence as such for example, documentation, or people from his country, or his own world, or his own word, which suggests that he is not Jewish. And he says at the end of this passage, which is the important part, even if one of those authorities argue, we agree that when we see someone behaving in an observant fashion, then we can believe him. But when we see in all this time all sorts of people come from all sorts of places, we should maintain our uncertainty whether they have a Jewish heritage, and we must explore the matter as much as we can. In other words, there's two ideologies that emerge. One says the traditional halakha is very clear. Someone who's Jewish who declares they're Jewish who joins the community. If they state they're Jewish, unless we have real reason to suspect that they're not. But that became, at a certain point, only relevant within certain streams in the Orthodox community, only if someone's observant. Observance has taken the place in certain streams of Jewishness. Just one moment, please. In my humble opinion, before I get to the conversion issue, this is a serious danger to the unity of the Jewish people. I have, I'm gonna, I consider myself an observant Orthodox Jew, but I believe very strongly that the extent to which observance takes the place of community, that threatens the integrity of our people. So, just a moment. I apologize for just Let me finish the argument. So, when I ask my first question to you, which is, are you Jewish or not? The answer to that first question is, well, it depends on who you ask. It really depends on who you ask. But I think if we go back to our primary sources, Isaiah, if we go back to the Shulchan Aruch, we have a very, very defi different definition than that which is at least operating today on the public scene in Israel. And I'm going to ask you to hold off your questions until later on in the presentation. This, of course, is for the people who are part of it. But there's a whole other dimension. 
The second part, so to speak, or the second aspect of people who are being more and more proud, well, to be left. Allow me to tell you the story of Maxime and Alina Sardikov, the story I've told about Shuli and Rabbi Dolphin before. Maxime and Alina are a wonderful couple that if you're over the age of 40 and you're sitting in this room, you're responsible. What do I mean? Maxime and Alina came in Aliyah in 1993. Okay? In 1974, I was on the front page of the New York Times. I was wearing a prisoner uniform. I was standing in front of the United Nations, and I had a placard around my neck that said, Free Victor, I don't even remember his last name. When I was growing up in New York, in the Senate, we were part of this massive Jewish civil rights movement that had nothing to do with us. It had to do with pre-Soviet Europe. If you're under 40, so here, I'll tell you how much this is. I'll tell you how much it's permeated the national consciousness in America. There was a Saturday Night Live character. You remember this? And there was a Saturday Night Live character who did a whole spoof on pre-Soviet Jewry. Right? She said, where does this all I hear about pre-Soviet Jewry? Where do I get the Soviet Jewry? Give me a jewelry? And then finally the corrector said, it's jewelry, not jewelry. <laughs> what did she say? Remember? Remember? Never, mind. Never mind, thank you. <laughs> and I went through an essay to describe how much the Soviet Jewry moved. Right? For seven years, that community, which represented half the Jewish world, was cut off from the Jewish community. And how much the movement to give these people rights, I remember Jackson Vanikin, the whole Bill Fast in America in the American Senate, and in the House, that enabled Jews to ultimately leave the former Soviet Union. And a million one hundred thousand came to Israel. Which is a, it's a miracle. It's a lot to change the completely change the demography in Israel. But what? And you'll see how this relates to you and this community, and the Phoenix community, and the North American community. After 70 years, more or less, of being cut off, many, many, But when they came to Israel, the rabbinate wouldn't recognize them as Jewish. They were able to make Aliyah as Jews. Their personal self-identification was Jewish. But not even the rabbinate. I should say more than the rabbinate, because you may be aware of this, and if you're not, you should be. The reform community in Israel also doesn't accept the rationalism definition of Jews. That's a fundamentally North American concept. So what that means is that the reform the Orthodox and the Conservative, as a unit, all of a sudden found themselves facing 350,000 or 400,000 people who were completely Jewish in every form except for the fact that halakhically they weren't Jewish. However, they defined halakha. The Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, and really make a Just to illustrate what that means, it means that today, when my son is going to be drafted, right? He's going to enter 
the military force, where one out of every 14 soldiers, right, is not allowed Jewish according to the Orthodox Reform or Conservative Standard Israel. That's a big deal. Seven to eight percent of Israeli Jewish society, Israeli Jewish society, isn't Jewish. And Maxim and Lina are this beautiful couple growing up in Israel by the time where they started second grade together in Ashkelon public school number three, and they grow up together by the time they're 16, they're a couple. And Maxim and Alina go get drafted together into the IDF, and have, right, Maxim's a fighter, he's a, he's a field intelligent. And Alina says, hey, I, I want to get married to Maxim, and I'm not going to be able to do that if I don't convert, and we're arguably the only kind, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I, I imagine Israel's the only military force in the world that has a conversion program for the military force. We do, and 800 people, 800 soldiers convert a year, and a lot of them end up beating me at one point or another along the way. And it's happening. And Alina's conversion is actually recognized. It's actually signed off on by the chief rabbi of Israel. But then Alina wants to get married. In the meantime, the second Lebanon war is broken out. Maxine has been up, you know, fighting, doing what field intelligence officers do. And now he's back. And they get their act together. And they walk into the rabbi in Ashkelon. Then the rabbi in Ashkelon, the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Ashkelon, who has the keys to opening up marriage trials, and he's entrusted by the law to open up marriage trials, says what's being said more and more and more, and something that was never said in the history of Jewish people until 30 or 40 years ago. And it certainly wasn't said with the kind of frequency that it's said in the last five or six years. The following says, you will not find this in the nomenclature of the Jewish people until the last 20 years. I do not accept that conversion. In particular, in that's Tafkes in a big way. Can I tell you why it's Tafkes? Because the chief rabbi of Ashkelon works for the chief rabbi of Israel. He's his employee. And he says, I don't accept the authority of the chief rabbi of Israel. So don't think for a moment this is orthodox, reform, conservative. It's nothing to do with that. Here you have two orthodox rabbis. One works for the other one. He says, I don't accept my boss's authority on the And Maxime called my office, and we heard that call 30 or 40 times over a period of six or seven months, and we decided to fight alongside Maxime. Maxime actually went on national television. He said the clip I was going to show you is Maxime standing on national television and saying, hey! When they dropped me on the other side of the Italian River in the Lebanon War, they no question my girlfriend's conversion. Then it was fine. And now they're not like, what is that? He says, what am I doing for this country? And as you know, that sentence, which is an equally problematic sentence, that sentence is happening over and over again across the denomination. Forget about the Orthodox, don't accept the Reform, and the Reform, and the Conservative. The Orthodox don't accept half the Orthodox. And the Chief Rabbi doesn't accept three quarters of the Orthodox. We've created a huge mess. And that mess has to be caught. We're going to go back to our sources. Challenging our history of understanding religion. We need to be embracing it. And the Jewish people can't afford to continue to do to ourselves what others aren't doing to us. We can't afford that. 
And what that means is sometimes, and I'll use a difficult phrase, right? A notorious Israel, the Orthodox rabbi, went to the Supreme Court and sued the chief rabbi of Israel. And that's what I did. Right? We sued the chief rabbi of Israel in the Supreme Court. And guess what? We won. And today, anybody who works at least in Israel, in the national system, today, they can get married wherever they want in Israel. And if the local rabbi doesn't like it, it's his tough luck, not the couple's tough luck. Unfortunately, that has to be exported. It's being exported. And you, in the North American Jewish community, feel it the most. You feel it across the denominational lines, for sure. There isn't even a basic respect for people who are Jews by choice of different denominations. And that, in my opinion, is a problem. It's a problem that we can't afford to continue to let go on. It's a festering wound. I'm not suggesting, as Orthodox are, I'm not suggesting that the Orthodox have to accept the Reform, the Reform has to accept the Orthodox. But there has to be a basic modicum of respect that I want to say very clearly. I believe that there's three types of Jews. Okay? There's Jews who care, there's Jews who are fundamentalists, and there's Jews who are ambivalent. Those are the three denominations as far as I'm concerned. And the Jews who care, even if we can't agree with each other, if you're in this room, you care. Even if we can't agree with each other about our standards, we have to learn to respect each other and love each other and embrace each other. Because that's really what Isaiah was talking so as many of you know, we fought very hard for the rights of converts, particularly North American converts. I'll tell you a story um, about a young fellow who, who, uh, who was a victim, a victim of the, this internal fighting that no one really understands. It's hard to really fathom going on. He was a young fellow in the Canadian Armed Forces who met an Israeli woman and wanted to convert. He converted uh, in Toronto. And he actually quit his job in the Canadian Armed Forces in order to make Aliyah. And then we told him it was going to be great. It was going to all work out fine. And when about a week before who was ready to come to Israel. The state of Israel, not the rabbi, the state of Israel told hey, we don't accept your conversion. He said, what do you mean you don't accept my conversion? I've heard with three Orthodox rabbis, here are their names, here are who they are, here are their communal affiliations. And they said, well, right, remember, this is the civil authority of the state, not the religious authority. They said, well, we didn't know who the rabbis were, so we consulted the rabbi, and they didn't know who the rabbis were. So as far as we're concerned, you're not able to make all the and again, he went to court to fight for his Jewish rights. Because that's what it takes sometimes. What it takes sometimes is not the soft touch, but the willingness to go down the road. So when I get to my second question, which is conversion then and now, without getting into the question of standards, we can disagree about standards, and that's okay. And it's fair and it's legitimate, but my question is, not what happened then and what's happening now. My question is, what are we doing with all those who 
trying to build walls around us, or we trying to, or can we go back to Isaiah's message? We had an opportunity to embrace, even if we disagree, even through our disagreement, we have an opportunity to be inclusive. Because really, that was the core of Jesus. And here I'll make my final point. See, there are really two ideologies playing at play here. One says, and I believe, I believe that it's an ideology play. And you might subscribe to that ideology. But I'm going to fight it with all my heart and all my soul. One ideology says that the best thing for the Jewish future is to protect the center as much as possible. It's to put up as many walls as we can and to be as insular as possible so that we have a strong core. And if that's your approach, then what you will do as much as possible is be protective and be exclusive and leave as many people out as possible. And if someone even smells about it in the shared past, then they're out. And if someone isn't sure they have a shared future, they can't get it. And then there's another vision. And this is the vision that really drives what I've dedicated the last 60 years of my life to or not. God gives me the strength over the next 60 years of life. There's a vision that says, we are a grand moment in Jewish history. No less grand than when Isaiah stood 2,500 years ago on the outskirts of Jerusalem. We've seen miracles in our time, whether we call them miracles or not. The Jewish people is changing and transforming. Not just demographically. There's something remarkable going on. What did Isaiah say? He doesn't just mean salvation. He means there's a transition going on. The Jewish people is going to look different for our children and our grandchildren. And it looked for the last 2,000 years. And the challenge we have is, are we going to be able to look at all those people who feel alienated and disenfranchised? All those people who feel like they have nothing shared with our grand future. Are we going to be able to look them in the eye and say, no, no, no. Even if you feel like you have a shared future, you're part of us no less than the people in the, in the center. Or to put it in technical terms, in mechanical terms, perhaps the best way to forge forward is to bring down the walls and not put them up. The best way to protect our future is to be as embracing as possible. The way to really live Isaiah's vision of the Jewish future. He said, okay, not one Jew left behind. There's no question that at the center of the Jewish discourse today in Israel, here, in Philly, you don't feel maybe on the streets as much about children feel it there in these days. But the issue of security in Israel is the forefront of our minds, as it should be. I pray three times a day there will be peace. 
everybody's allowed to question everything, and one, you're going to find the one guy who well, you know, doesn't care about anything. That's what I'm saying. So that has to be solved. We've created a culture, we've got a culture developed that enables everything to be questioned. Instead of saying, the standard is, you should be right, even if we disagree, even if we disagree about the standard, it's okay to disagree. We've created a culture where it's okay to do that. Instead of creating a culture where that should be the odd man out. Yes? Two questions, Kevin. The first one is why? What, what, is, the, what is the motivation for, for this change that has taken place over the last Second question is, have, have you been on the receiving end of, of any forms of retribution from uh, the person? <laughs> um, so what's happened? Again, I want to make it clear. We're, we're, at this point, we're winning the bet. The, the pendulum is swinging back in our favor, your favor, my favor. I want to make that very clear. There's remarkable things going on. Why did it swing in that favor for a long time? It swung in that favor because, um, first of all, the immigrants in the former Soviet, in Israel, uh, there was a lot of misinformation. The rabbis who were in charge of this issue didn't speak Russian, they assumed they saw, they were told that a lot of people were just lying, but there were some I've seen also. I've seen a lot of uh, forgeries and falsifications about people's identity and stuff like that. And that created a bad name for the whole thing. The influx of Russians and Ethiopians? Yes, particularly Russians. Um, in addition, it wasn't handled properly. There, was, there wasn't training, there wasn't, the whole system went unchecked. There was no education. No one, I can tell you, the people who are in charge, let's say there's a guy, a 36-year-old man, who has the desk of certification as the chief rabbi. He would not understand this room. He wouldn't understand the diversity and the beauty of the Jews that are sitting around this thing, you know, our table. He, he wouldn't get it, because their world slowly and gradually has become more and more myopic. Because of that, right, and monolithic, because of that, there needs to be kind of like a rattling to a certain extent. And what I want to say, I'm, I'm, I'm here to be a bearer of good news, not bad news. I want to tell you we're winning. Or we're beginning to win. We're not winning. We're beginning to win. This issue is becoming much more prominent, not just here. It's becoming much more prominent in Israel. And people are saying, hey, Jewish life in Israel doesn't just relate to a certain group of rabbis. It relates to the entire Jewish world. We have to begin to address that. A friend of mine just brought, this is fantastic, this is a good example. He just brought 10 ultra-Orthodox reporters, people who write you know, on their website, to a trip around America, to meet Jewish communities around America. That's a way that we're changing things slowly. Okay, so that was your first question about what, what was the second, second question? Again? Is, oh, have I, personal retribution. So I told you, I wanted to show you the clip of Maxine going on television saying, uh, uh, my, my girl, when I call the other side of the Italian River, where I say, where my girlfriend's get hurt. So it's the same clip on the news. I grabbed up and said, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I have a license to perform weddings. I think this is a travesty. Okay, let me just make a caveat first. If, you're, if you ever become a rabbi and you're invited on national television with a soldier who's converted into the accepted, don't say the following sentence, okay? <laughs> don't say this. I will perform their wedding even if it means me losing my license. 
Okay, don't say that on national television. Stupid thing to say. They followed through. Okay? So for nine months, I wasn't able to perform weddings in Israel. It would be more the case, and then I was able to perform weddings in Israel again. But I haven't been subject to physical abuse. And that's what you're talking about. Or that even subject to, uh, I, you know, there's some threats. That's not my possibility. You know, all sorts of things. And I'm not allowing you to perform weddings, and I'm not allowing you to perform the rabbit, etc. And certainly my uh, ET, the organization, has been vilified in all sorts of places. Uh, and a lot of our partner organizations have been more than vilified. But that's part of the game also, is you want to, you know, I'm being very clear. If you want to get out of that fight, because you believe in the cause, then you have to, you know, then you're going to get hurt sometimes. Okay, but you believe in the cause, and justice will prevail, and I, and I really feel that I want to make this, it's not, I want to always be positive. This is a great moment of Jewish history. To a certain extent, right, what's the subtext behind that thing? The perspective, what's the subtext? The subtext is there are people feeling disenfranchised. If he needs to come along and say, don't say I feel disenfranchised, and even the people aren't saying they're feeling disenfranchised. And that's the moment we're at. Now, I'm no, I don't want to make a joke. I'm not a prophet. I'm the son of a prophet. I just run a non-prophet, right? But I, but I, right? I, don't, I don't pretend to be a prophet, right? But I, but I do say that our situation is no less, is no different. We're in this great moment in Jewish history. There are people feeling down and out. And legitimately so. But if I have anything to do about it, I'm going to fight to the nose and make sure that they don't feel that way. Yeah, in the back of the just one second. Please. So, <coughs> you make great arguments, but those Thank that you. are controlling the system right now, how do they justify what they're doing? They can't refer back to Isaiah. I told you, they. It's not justice, it's not righteousness. Their ideology is that. They have an ideological point of view. I don't want to pretend they're all bad. I disagree with. There are a lot of point of view that the best way to protect the Jewish people is just to lock off huge swaths of Jewish people and just protect the center. As long as we have a very strong people who look like us, we'll be okay. So they don't even attempt to use the lock up to just They claim that that's a, that's a lock approach. I claim this is a lock approach. Right? But, they, they're, but again, it all shifts down. It's not that they don't care about the Jewish people. They claim the best way to protect the Jewish future is to, right, is to, is to be insolent. And I claim the best way to protect the Jewish future is to be expensive. That's what it comes down to. But they're not all bad. There are some people, right? The Rabbi Yishon Lutzion, right, which is the fourth largest city in Israel. I, I, I say this metaphorically, but I'm sure you're true. He has a dark board with my picture on his, you know, his office. But I also have a dark board with his picture in my office. So that's okay. You know what I'm saying? This 36 year old guy, right? As part of the team business plan in 2016, we want to fire Because we don't think it's responsible that the guy who, you know, there shouldn't be a desk like that. At least the person should, you know, the person's in charge. I'm going to very clear. If the person's in charge, if your kids and grandchildren, if they come to Israel, if you're getting certification or not certification, it seems to me like you want to speak English. What do you think? Like, how are you supposed to figure that out? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you've been waiting for a long time. Yeah, it, it seems like the, the guy from Chicago was, was uh, rejected. Um, even if he brought documentation from his grandmother's grave, the rabbi could have said that's not good enough also. How do we know that's real? I mean, it's totally arbitrary. And it seems like the phrase that's missing from this conversation uh, applies to 
natural tendency growth. Our country, right? Uh, Israel is 67 years old. But this whole phenomenon of Jewish people is 15 or 20 or 30 years old. That's it. We've always been dealing with this whole mess for 30 years about people's status and this. So these are natural things. It's not, it's not only a power issue. Power is part of it. In this case, you're right. In Mark's case, how do I get it through? I went to his boss. And when his boss said, I don't know what to do with that, I went to the rabbinical court. So at 7 o'clock the next morning, I was in the rabbinical court arguing the case. And when they, you know, they, they can lord over the rabbinical court. Registry is married, 
Cyprus, the same thing as far as the government is concerned. Right, when you look at all those numbers in Cyprus, is an example of it, right? My, when I got married, so my mother of blessed memory was sick, and we changed our wedding from Israel to the States. So I'm listed as someone who got married in Cyprus, basically. <laughs> the same thing, because I was an Israeli citizen who got married overseas. So they don't know that I got married. There's actually a classic running joke because we got married overseas. So when my kids come to get married, they have to prove they're Jewish. And then obviously, because they're having to lose, oh, Barbara's kids forget it. It's a great opportunity for revenge. <laughs> my kids are already prepared for it, yes. There's different civil union, but there is a, a declaration that they are a couple. Right. There's such a thing as a declaration as a couple, and it's an attempt to pass a civil union bill that would also help us resolve also something that's gnawing at the democratic character of the state, which is uh, homosexual marriage, which is something that Israel has no way to contend with right now. Um, so I, I can't speak to the particular case, but I can tell you is that um, we've been. I've been one of the long Orthodox voices that said there should be civil marriage in Israel. I think that will help us kind of enable people to have uh, more opportunity. But in the end, it's not just I don't want civil marriage. I want Judaism. I want, I want Jewish life. I want Judaism to be able to, you know, be manifest in Israel. And I want people to have opportunities for Jewish marriage in Israel. And I want that to be as wide as, as possible. I guess. I guess we. Not moms they mean, but they will be considered, uh, they will have to prove their Jewishness, just like anybody else. So they'll have to prove their Jewishness. The only thing that meets the criteria, or is the only people don't get asked questions, so to speak, are people whose parents got married through the Rabbanu, or the previous generation. My brother and sister got married. So then they'd have to go back and prove it, but it wouldn't work. It won't be so complicated. But this is, again, my, my challenge is to make sure these questions don't play up in the next generation. Instead of plaguing us in the next generation, we've come up with an ordinance of envy that enables us to, uh, to move forward as a people. I'm going to stop the questions if that's okay. You should stop and uh, give Rachel an opportunity to refresh. I'll be happy to take out a couple more minutes uh, if anybody has any questions. So thank you again very much. Good evening. It is not easy to be Jewishness, to fight not only for particular individuals, but also to try to change the